Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Opinion or Opportunity. I am your host, Don Gringo. I know it's been a little bit, but thank you for coming back. Uh, have a very, very special show today. So with everything that's happened recently in the news, there's been one question that's been floating around more than ever, and it's the question, should and could Texas succeed? Well, I have Daniel Miller. Okay, He's the founder of the Texas Nationalist Movement. And that's what they want. They want their own Texas nation state. So can Texas actually stand on its own if it actually left? Let's find out. Here we go. So... Please give me introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your movement. Sure. Um, my name is Daniel Miller, and I'm president of the Texas Nationalist Movement. And we were founded back in 2005. And our mission is the political, cultural, and economic independence of Texas. So, uh, you know, we uh, as an organization, it's it's been fun to watch the uh, establishment political guys and the mainstream media try to marginalize us, but uh, they try to get everyone to ignore the fact that outside of the two major political parties here in Texas, we're one of, if not the largest advocacy organization. You know, I was actually doing a little research, like I had said before we started recording, you know, um, I found it quite interesting that, you know, for instance, you know, when people look at countries and can countries like survive on their own, um, if you actually cut out Texas by its current GDP numbers, it would rival number nine in the world, which would be Italy as a standalone yeah. country, which was absolutely astounding to see. But some of the research I've done is some, some pundits will throw back at this, and, and I'm going to ask you the same question is, sure. can Texas afford not to get the federal dollars? I mean, some research says we pay more because obviously you can see I have a Texas flag behind me. I'm a transplant going on three years. Right. Um, but some research says we paid the United States more than we receive. And some people say we couldn't do without those federal dollars. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, watching uh, the opposition do their common core math, uh, you know, to, to try to say that we pay, um, you know, we get more out of the federal government than we pay in. But what, what they typically do is they take, a, to, to skew the numbers, they'll take a program, say, like uh, Social Security, right? And, uh, you know, Social Security is, is what's termed as an earned benefit. So you pay money into a system where they promise that you will receive money back. And so they do that to skew the numbers, right? A good example of, of why... Uh, you got to take sort of Social Security out of the equation. And, and frankly, any federal pension benefits uh, is how they treat Social Security recipients that live overseas, right? You, you don't have to live in the United States to receive federal pension benefits. It's right there on the State Department's website. So, you know, they do that to try to skew the numbers. But the fact of the matter is, is that any policy institute worth their salt has run the numbers. And on average, what you're going to find is that Texas overpays somewhere in the neighborhood of anywhere from 103 to $160 billion a year into the federal system. Now, <clears throat> that number, you know, people may say, well, you can't, you can't survive off of 103 to $160 billion. Well, 
that's not all that we pay into the federal government. That's just the amount that we overpay, right? That we never see again, not in so, you know a federal job here in Texas, a federal grant, a federal benefit payment. It just it just goes away to be either eaten up by this you know monstrous bureaucracy or to be redistributed to other states to kind of prop up their failures. So, you know, the the fact of the matter is, is that from an economic standpoint, if you were to take the federal government out of the equation, while Texas on average is about ninth or 10th in the world for GDP, uh, there's no doubt in, in my mind that in the absence of the federal government and all the, you know, that sort of giant sucking sound that's moving toward Washington, D.C., <laughs> You know, there's, yeah. there's no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, we're, we're probably looking at somewhere at becoming the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. And that's because Texas gets it right economically. Well, you know, that's, but doesn't Texas, because they get it right economically, but they have a law in the books. If I'm correct me, if I'm wrong here though, because again, being a transplant, learning about Texas and then obviously having all this, but Texas has a, a law in the books that most states don't have, which is. Every two years, the budget needs to be balanced, right? Yeah, yeah. Texas it has a, you know, we are required constitutionally to balance our budget. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, people don't, there, there are a lot of quirks about the way Texas governs itself that people don't realize. Like uh, our legislature meets for 140 days every other year. And outside of a special session called by the governor, that's it. I mean, you know, it, it really cuts down to the government that governs best governs least. Now, <laughs> granted, they, you know, they do get a lot of, they do get a lot of things passed in that 140 days and it's pretty frenzy. But, you know, this, this idea of, of balancing the budget is not new to Texas. I mean, they're required to do it. Literally, the legislature is only required to pass one piece of legislation every two years. And that is the budget and it must be balanced. Yeah, and that was one of the things I found quite interesting because there's a lot of states, like you pointed out, that actually fail that without other states like Texas paying into the system for them to be propped up. I mean, if their balance, budgets were had to be balanced, I mean, they wouldn't be in the state they're in today. And, of course, you know, places like California wouldn't be in debt, I mean, as it is today. I mean, so Texas in some aspects financially and economically does get it right. But let's talk about the next step when you look at separating Texas, in my mind, from from the rest of the country. So I think the one thing that's against the Texas nationalist movement is really the idea, the idea of America as, you know, hey, we're part of the United States. And we have a lot of people in Texas, including myself, who's a transplant, right? I mean, right. I'm originally from Massachusetts. I was living in Florida for over a decade before I came here. So um, when you talk about separation, how does that look for like from not an immigration standpoint from Mexico into Texas into the United States, but you have families here that are from other states. How does that look from an immigration standpoint when people want to come to Texas uh, if it's its own country now, separate from the United States? I mean, you're sure. looking at having a whole new border. Are we talking like maybe when me and you were growing up, like with the Canadian border, all you needed is a driver's license? Are we talking like you're full-fledged? No, Texas has a lot of border at that point. No, full-fledged you know, border patrol surrounding all of Texas. I mean, that's... That's a hell of a border. Sure. Yeah. And, and look, the, the thing, it, it's always interesting to me, you know, that, that the federal, you know, the people that are so insistent that we stay part of this federal system don't themselves understand federal policy. 
right? Like a good example, there's like a million and a half legal border crossings between the United States and Mexico, almost on a, I think it's a monthly basis using nothing more than what's called a border transit card, right? Right. You don't have to apply for a visa. You don't have to have a passport. It's literally a card And, and that's happening right now. That's current policy. Uh, you, you see this accomplished around the world where you can freely travel between countries that are friendly with one another, that have compatible systems. Um, you can, you know, e- either travel is completely unrestricted or, you know, has something just akin to that border transit card that you just have to have on you and present when you go through. So, you know, the, this concept that somehow Texas leaving the union means that, you know, we've erected the great wall of uh, Texas <laughs> around, around the borders, you know, or somehow we floated off into the middle of the ocean. It's just, it's sort of ludicrous in the context of current federal policy and the way that the world works right now. Well, you know, I want to touch one more, one more thing on economics that just popped into my mind and I wanted to ask sure. you, but we, I, I jump ship, so excuse me. Um, <laughs> No, it's it's listen, I have a lot of questions. This when I, I when I started doing this, researching this, I mean, again, not on board saying, okay, this is gonna hundred percent work, yeah. but the idea of if it could was right. like, was like wow. You know, it's like it really throws a, a punch in your gut because doing mm-hmm. the research, if I get the information from you properly and people get it properly from you, mm-hmm. um it's a true possibility. It's like a true possibility that, you know, Texas could stand on its own legs and to hell with everybody else. And so let's get back to that, because the sure. one thing I looked at, obviously, way back in the past, and we're talking way back in Texas history, it was its own country for a while, for like the decade. Right. And it had its own currency. So would Texas, in your mind, would have to go back to its own currency? And what would it be backed by if it did? Well, two, two questions. Uh, does Texas have to? And the answer is no. Uh, Texas would, I'm sure Texas would want to, you know, most self-governing independent nations want to have their own currency. Um, But we don't have to. As a matter of fact, in in the period of transition, you know, from the the time that Texas says, okay, look, we're, we're, you know, we're going to leave, we're going to be a self-governing independent nation, but we've got some things that we've got to do to get there, right? Uh, you know, there's transitional issues, constitutional, statutory. There's a lot of those things. So in, in that transitional period, uh, what what effectively happens is we continue to use the U.S. dollar, uh, either through a formal currency union or an informal currency union, right? These things, again, exist all around the world. You can go to other countries and they will have either adopted the U.S. dollar as an uh, unofficial currency or in some cases adopted it as an official currency. And those are unilateral actions, right? Those don't require the federal government's permission. Okay. But that's just transitional. You know, ultimately Texas is going to want its own currency. Now, what shape, form, or fashion that's going to take, um, who knows? Who knows what it's going to take? We could honestly be in, in an informal currency union indefinitely until we work out exactly how we want to do it. Well, the only reason why I ask that is because, you know, when the United States went off of the gold standard, it kind of mm-hmm. threw the currency out the window and made it subject to interpretation of what it's worth. I mean, it, <laughs> right. I, I mean, it's a fiat currency, right? It's no. a fiat currency. But, you know, he, here's the thing. As of right now, we have zero say over monetary policy. I mean, none. I mean, we as, as Texans and as Texas, 
we have virtually no say whatsoever. That's been jobbed out to the Federal Reserve. They they regulate the speed of the printing presses and, and therefore regulate essentially the value of the dollar against goods and services and, uh, and other currencies around the world. So, you know, the, the fact that we just would have the ability to ha- affect that decision and, and determine how we want to handle our currency uh, is pretty important. And, and I think it's important for, for folks out there to understand that, you know, Texas has already started taking steps that direction, uh, kind of under the radar. You know, one of the, one of the pieces of legislation that our organization was proud to support and in my mind helped push across the finish line was the Texas Gold Depository Act. Uh, which uh, essentially gave us our own state-owned gold depository right here in Texas. Uh, our own Fort Knox, basically. Our uh, Essentially our own Fort Knox, yeah. Well, I, mean, I know it's not exact, no, d- apples to apples, but it's no, but it, term for people who don't understand. Sure, yeah. And and what it is, it's it's a, a, a depository for both state-owned precious metal resources and privately owned. But w- one of the things that people did not that people completely missed about that piece of legislation was that there was a, a provision in there that called for the creation of an electronic metals-based currency <clears throat> around the gold in the depository. People, you know, it, it essentially set up an electronic transaction system based on the deposits of gold. And people, uh, that I, I don't know why that that part of it did not gain more attention uh, but it was, in, in my mind, the first steps toward Texas setting up at least some form of its own currency that was attached to the value of the precious metals in hand. Now, a lot of people you know also tend to look at this, and, and um, I'm not saying it's a problem, but it might be a problem, right? If if Texas actually did want to separate at some point, you no, know, we moving into this, you no, know, the state, if it went its own country. There's a lot of companies in the past decade or more who have upended left other states to come to Texas, sure. expecting still to be part of the United States, but came to a state that was more business friendly in nature, right? So what happens to those companies that upended, moved to Texas? I mean, how would you try to keep them? Because essentially they were still predicting to be part of the United States and as soon as you pull that plug, they're not. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, again, it's, it's not something that happens overnight. And I no, think I'm not saying overnight, but yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. like, for instance, Elon Musk just moves here. And then <laughs> next, you know, five years from now, Texas is independent. And he did not expect to be part of an independent Texas. He expected to be part of the United States, but in Texas. <laughs> I mean, uh, look, I, I'm sure he'd be perfectly happy to plant a, a Texas flag on Mars for us, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, look, you know, to, to your point, I mean, you know, there's there's rhetoric and there's reality, okay. And and a good example of of the sort of rhetoric that you get uh, from from the opposition we saw during the Brexit debate, right? There, there was this. Project Fear pumping up, you know, these companies saying these companies were going to all flee the UK and relocate to, you know, some European country. Uh, and and what happened, it didn't materialize, right? It, it was rhetoric and fear mongering. And, and what those people realized is maintaining their headquarters uh, and, and their center of operations in the UK outside of the EU was still monetarily beneficial, right? I mean, they, they received it. <laughs> 
financial benefit from that, you know, and, and look, let's be honest. It's about business, right? It's a cost right. benefit. It's cost benefit analysis. And, and here's what we know. We know that, um, in the end, it may take a while to get there during the transition side of this and negotiation, but I suspect that that Texas and the United States will have a free trade agreement, right? I think it would be hypocritical for them to want to negotiate a free trade agreement with Canada and Mexico and not with Texas, especially with all those refineries and, and you know, of course, the, the ports that we have, the Port of Laredo and Houston. So we're going to get a free trade agreement out of it. But you know, that was one of, one of the questions you segued in that I wanted to get into. A lot of people sure. outside of Texas who don't live here and obviously see the amount of business actually mm-hmm. done within the boundaries of Texas. And I do. I travel all over Texas. Um, a lot of people will sit there and say, well, you know, once Texas has no more oil, they can't stand on their own. Right. I mean, <laughs> but think about it. I mean, yeah. outside of outside of Texas, and I will yeah. be the first one to say in some aspects, I was ignorant to the fact of how big. Texas was until you really live in Texas, travel Texas, and you go, well, goddamn, you could still travel nine hours from east to west, and you're still in Texas. I mean, you're not anywhere near the border, and then you look at all the different farming businesses and outside of it. Texas is renowned for its oil, so let's let's kind of get that out of the way. If Texas had no oil, could Texas, in your mind, still stand on its own? Well, a- absolutely. I mean, how many countries don't have oil that can still stand on their own, right? I mean, that ha- having a lot of oil is not a prerequisite to being self-governing, <laughs> you know. Uh, otherwise, there are a lot of countries out there that would be screwed. But look, l- let me just put it to you this way. Back in the 1980s, right, at, at the height of J.R. Ewing and, and Dallas and-, and all of that, you know, Texas was really about the oil. Now, there was some diversification, you know, but it was it was energy and ag. I mean, those were the two core parts of the Texas economy. And then of course, in the 80s, the oil bust happened, right? And fortunes were lost. I mean, the the state lost tons and tons of revenue. And so the governor at the time and and you know, the the political powers that be said, "Look, we we can't keep going through this boom bust cycle." We have to consciously diversify our economy and make sure that it is not so strictly tied to the boom bust cycle of oil. And so that's exactly what they did. You know, Texas over the years has, um, you know, people forget that uh, Silicon Prairie was a thing before the Silicon Valley was. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's, that's revived. You know, we've got, we've got probably got more tech here than Silicon Valley does right now. Of course they get all the press and the cool shows on TV, right? But, you know, we're manufacturing chips and, you know, we, we have technology uh, and our technology sector is booming. But look, people also forget that Texas, across all 50 states, is the number one exporter of manufactured goods, right? So our No, absolutely. I was doing the research and that is absolutely 100% no statement. I mean, we, that was one of the things I wanted to get into later was logistically Texas, logistically is amazing like i mean you're in the middle of the country everything may or may not pass through texas at some point going east or west of the united states sure and you have your own ports you have this you have that i mean it's like your own cattle your own farming i mean what doesn't logistically texas have it's like yeah if we can't if we can't if we don't have what it takes to be a a self-governing independent nation then who does you know i mean that's ultimately the question and and don't get me wrong i'm not saying that that level of, of productivity, prosperity, whatever, I'm not saying that that is an absolute prerequisite to, to being a self-governing independent nation, but, but it does beg the question. 
if if 195 other countries around the world can manage this, then what is it about us that says that we can't? Yeah, but you know, I gotta I gotta throw it out there, and it's not again, it's not it's it's more of a probing and challenging type of situation here because of the fact. Sure. I want to make the statement. It obviously helps because in the Texas Constitution, don't you don't you as a movement need to you know change the minds of at least two thirds of the population in order for that to even happen to leave? Where, where did the two thirds come? I from? think I think I heard that doing some research. Like you need so like so many of the so much of the population vote in order to no. make Texas. Oh uh, no, no. Te- okay. te- Texas Texas has always been a majority rules state. You know, right. I mean, it's you know, you can amend the Constitution with fifty percent plus one. So that's the only threshold that we need. There is no supermajority of voters. Okay. Um, that's the way it's always been. So it will always be. Uh, you know, there are exceptions to the two-thirds rule when it applies to the legislature, right? When they are, uh, you know, proposing a constitutional amendment or something along those lines. But there, there has never been a supermajority rule for a vote of the people. Never. Now, let's get into one thing. I know this has been posed to you many times, but let's get it out of the way. I know we probably should have done it up front, but... When it comes to the United States Constitution, sure. this is really not touched upon anywhere in that document when it comes to uh, adopting or you know succeeding states, right? It's, yeah, it's it's, really not- uh, the, the federal constitution is absolutely silent on the issue. And, and it's important to note that because there are a lot of people out there who says, well, the constitution you know, doesn't say that you can do it. Well, that's not the purpose of the federal constitution, right? The federal constitution lays out what the federal government can do. It then lays out what states cannot do. So it's explicit about what they cannot do. And then it goes on to say that anything not specifically delegated to the federal government or prohibited to the states are reserved to the states and the people. Okay, so that's that's plain language of the Constitution. And because of that, that means that the, the Constitution's silence on the issue reserves that question to the states to make up their mind. And Article 1, Section 2 of the Texas Constitution tells us exactly um, how, how that, that happens. And it tells us, well, not exactly, but it at least gives us in principle how that happens and reserves the right to the people of Texas to reform, alter, or abolish our form of government in such manner as we may think expedient. So let's get into... One one thing that uh, was kind of fascinating when me and my wife moved here. My wife is actually from Monterey, Mexico. I met her while well, in Florida, um, so she understands Texas a lot better than I do because she's been coming and going out of the, the state for a long time legally. Right. So anyone out there legally? <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I, when I moved here, I was quite fascinated because my mother had visited Texas on and off throughout my whole life, and she always loved Texas and she always talked about Texas, but. I was quite surprised that uh, I know a lot of states think they have it, but the Texas pride thing here is absolutely amazing. Like you can't walk into a store anywhere without seeing something Texas. I mean, the attitude here is quite different. And I know it was always, um, I, I guess, joked upon in other states. Like, you know, there's the United States and then there's Texas or vice versa. I mean, it's just very weird to actually live here and see it now. But it's quite amazing. I now can look back and go, yeah, a lot of the states I lived in, a lot of the states I traveled to, they don't have that like hoorah, whatever state like Texas does. Texas really does enjoy its culture. Absolutely. Look, I mean, you know, 
what what other state can you go buy a waffle iron in, in the shape of your state? You know, what, <laughs> you know, I see that all the time. I see that I all the time. Me and my wife, me and my wife, look at each other. And go, man, this is so cool. I mean, I've never lived anywhere that was so proud Ooh. of who and what they were. Well, I, I mean, look, it's it's bravado. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, maybe a bit. You know, I think it was um, George W. who said that. Uh, you know, some people say that uh, in Texas we have a swagger. We just call that walking. You know, I mean, it's you know, sort sort of that that kind of thing. But you know, it, it really feeds into it. I mean, if you go around the world, people can pick out Texas on a map. You know, right. you you if you tell people that you're a Texan, you get a vastly different welcome than if you, you know, if you're, if you say you're an American tourist, I mean, it's just, it's a very different situation. Uh, and, and it's, look, it's, that's, it's that same way among the other states. And I think a lot of the other states may kind of look at us with a bit of green eyed jealousy. You know, we, we, just to give you sort of a, a flip side, you know, each side of the coin, uh, I, I would say people in other states will, will tell you, say, Hey, you can always tell a Texan, you just can't tell them much. <laughs> you know, they, they kind of look at us that way. And we, you know, and, and our side of it, we, you know, we say, don't ask them, you know, don't ask a person if they're a Texan, uh, if they are, they'll tell you. And if they're not, there's no need to embarrass them, you know? Right. So it's, it's flip sides of, of, of the coin, but yeah, I mean, it's, but I would, I would venture this. I mean, look, Texas has got pride in spades. I mean, we just, we've got, it oozes out of us. I mean, if you go in there and look at the Christmas tree in the other room, it's got Texas ornaments all over it. And that's not a byproduct of my work in the Texas nationalist movement. That's a byproduct of me being born here. You know, right. it's just the way that it works. So but, since you're born there and you're a native, let me ask you this. So you, sure. you obviously see a lot of transplants in, a, in a, the past decade coming here. Texas has sure. offered over the last decade probably if not the most, one of the most uh, states that offer the most opportunity Um out there for anybody, right? So you have a lot right. of transplants. So how long does a transplant need to live in Texas before he can call himself a Texan? How about that one? Man, I, you know, I don't have an answer for that. Um, I will tell you that there are people that have not even made it here yet that consider <laughs> that, that consider themselves Texan, um, you know, because you have Texans by birth. Uh, you have Texans by virtue of, of their address. <laughs> you definitely have those people that are Texans in spirit. Uh, you know, we, a lot of people forget about in, in Texas history when Texas began to open up, uh, you know, back in the 1830s, uh, people that had need, you know, that needed a second chance, uh, in, in the other States or even, uh, overseas, uh, they would skip out. They would paint GTT on their door, gone to Texas, you know, and they would load up every possession they had. And sometimes it wasn't much or anything. And they would make that arduous trek into Texas, which was a wilderness at the time. You know, it was not a hospitable place, but it was bountiful in resources and wide open in opportunity. And, you know, Texas has always been that place, I, I think, where even, even in, you know, the modern era where opportunity abounds, uh, we, we get it right because we say, look, you know, the, the Texas is, is yours. Uh, everything it has to offer, everything that it has been, everything that it can be is yours. And what you make of it, it is on you. But at least you're getting the chance. 
So is that the message that needs to be told to people who are moving in from other states? I mean, your movement's been around for a while, but obviously you've seen the demographic change because of the um, influx of transplants like myself. I came for work. It was just you no know, better out here than it was where I was at. Sure. Um, I've embraced the Texas culture. My wife is from Mexico. She's always embraced the Texas culture. So it's easy for me. But, you know, I also look at it differently, too, because being a Marine, I look at Texas like the Marine Corps of the United States. I mean, it sets itself apart. Like, yes, right. we're part of something, but we don't listen to you. You know, and I was funny because I, I read probably like a year or two ago, uh, I think it was the New York Times or something. I may be wrong, so no one quote me. But there was an article that was, does the United States need a rogue Marine Corps anymore? Because what most people don't understand about the Marine Corps is the motto is God, Corps, and then country. You know, and it's like Texas is kind of like the same way, God, Texas, and then the country. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for me, picking up the Texas attitude, I, got, I can do that. That's not a problem. But how do, you, how do you message it properly, market it properly to people who come here from other states still expecting to be part of the United States, you know, because they have family maybe here and somewhere else, that we're going to do this and we want you part of it? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I think uh, and, and this is anecdotal, right? But sure. as you can imagine, a lot of uh, we get a lot of contact. Uh, from people that have just moved here or in the process of moving here. I mean, we we probably get asked uh, about available housing and jobs probably more than the, you know, Visitors Bureau or the Texas Workforce Commissioner. You know, we probably should start a relocation service. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, so so we we hear it. And, and look, I think a lot of people are moving here, right? There are a lot of folks that are moving here, and they are already separating in their minds, right? I mean, there is, there is a sense that coming to Texas – is that that separation that that separation from you know the state where they were, but a, a lot of the other things uh, that really we're talking about related to the the United States and the federal government and things of that nature. I think there's almost a mental or spiritual separation for many of those people when they move here. So you know, I, I think you you see that played out to a certain extent in, in the politics. Uh, there's a, a fear that people have that uh, all these folks that are moving here are going to be the ones that are blocking Texas. And I would almost posit that those are going to be a lot of the people that help us push this thing across the goal line. Oh, well, no, don't get me wrong. I mean, even someone yeah. like me, I mean, I'm not sold on the idea, but I can tell you this, that if you well, were to we approach me on the street and say, hey, Christopher, what do you think of what you're, what you have today going on versus what yeah. you've experienced? I will tell you that my almost three years in Texas has been a better you know, lifestyle um, than where I've been. And I was living five, no, five, 10 minutes from the beach uh, outside of Clearwater beach. I mean, Florida. So I'm, I'm telling you that I, I can tell the difference here. I mean, let's face it. You're, you don't have income tax here. So people nope. keep more of their money. Housing is more affordable. That's why most people I think outside of work come to Texas is because you can, uh, have better opportunity. You don't have an income tax, so you keep more money. And by the way, you can get more house, no more bang a buck for the house that you you buy. I mean, let's. I mean, that's even true from where I came in Pinellas County, Florida. I mean, it was, you know, uh, a two bedroom, one bath could run you on a lot for you no, know, depending where it was, a quarter million dollars. I mean, for a two two bed, one bath, it's like holy shit, no, <laughs> no. I mean, right. come on. 
Right. Now, I'm not saying I'm in the most expensive part of Texas because I'm not. I'm actually in central Texas because I travel all over Texas. So I'm yep. closer to Fort Hood. And I can tell you that for the same 250000 you get a hell of a lot more house here than Texas than you would ever where I was in Florida. I mean. Right. So, yeah. yeah people I are finding that out. Yeah. So let's talk about one, one serious question that has to be brought up. So. Sure. Obviously, the United States ain't going to take that lightly if it even comes close to the possibility that Texas succeeds. What's the what's to stop the U.S. government from, you know, deploying, say, Fort Hood, uh, the army here in Fort Hood to become an occupational force and, you know, keep Texas part of the United States? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh uh, it, this is one of my favorite questions uh, because, it, it, <clears throat> but it's true, I, and it's I, possible. Well, look, anything's possible. You know, we could vote for Texas and get hit by an asteroid. You know, anything, <laughs> any, anything is possible, right? right. I mean, uh, but you know, th- some things are more probable than others. That so, uh, let, let's just sort of take it thirty thousand foot view, and then we'll we'll, we'll drill down. Okay, sure. uh, you have to ask yourself. For this military incursion to happen, what would those circumstances need to be? Right. So let, let's kind of let's kind of go through your scenario. Texans go to the polls. Texans vote. They say we want to leave. We start the process. We send negotiators, and the commander in chief of the United of the United States uh, military says, "Okay, great. Let's go start bombing WalMarts in Houston." <laughs> okay. I wasn't uh, saying going know. bombing, but I'm sure they could have deployed, say, the you know, called martial law throughout the state of Texas, deployed the military, and okay, you know, so so let's take that for for what reason? What what have we done? What have we done to warrant military occupation? Well, did we did, did we take up arms? Did we take up arms? Did we shoot anyone? Did we take anything over? All we did was we cast a vote that they didn't like. But, you, okay. but Texas is a cash cow for the United States. I, I do not disagree with that. I and mean, so, if you want to boil it down to power sure. and money, money is going to win out over this one because absolutely, they're going money to want to keep Texas out. no matter what way you want to cut it. They're not going to let it go lightly. Well, they won't let it go lightly. But let's let's get let's get something straight. A, a military occupation over uh, over voting the way that they don't like. Uh, doesn't set well with the people of Texas because remember, for this for this to be a thing, over half of the people of Texas have to vote to leave, mm-hmm. right? So are half of the people of Texas going to suffer a military occupation? So what does that what does that leave? What does that leave on the federal government side? Brute force? Are are they going to bomb our refineries? Is that what's going to happen? Uh, are well, are know, they going to enact you know, a trade embargo? Because could, that's cutting off their nose despite their face. Well, you know, it could be as simple as what Michigan just did with the Electoral College uh, people, where they blocked the courthouse from even having the vote. I mean, the, the state house from even having the Electoral College you know, cast their vote, at least a good half of them, right? The Republican side. So, so they, could if, literally, <laughs> they could literally just block the state house. So it, interestingly enough, if the federal government prevents us from voting, or for, from governing ourselves, they have effectively overturned their own constitution and our constitution, thereby justifying the action that we have to take to tax it, right? I mean, because let, let's be honest, if at the moment 
that they suspend their own constitution and use military force against us in, in any shape, form, or fashion, the union is over anyway. Texas may be the first, but we won't be the last. But I want to put it in, in this in this context for you, okay? I want you to think about this. You were in the Marines, and so you, you will understand this probably more so than many people. For the last 70-plus years, even more now, the United States federal government has sent our grandfathers and fathers and our sons and daughters around the world to fight and sometimes die for the right of self-determination for, for, for people everywhere, people in countries that most of our people don't even realize exist, to fight for that right of self-determination. So imagine what, what sort of hypocritical nonsense it would be and what sort of global backlash would exist if the United States, if the United States federal government decided to use the military on Texas because we voted wrong, well, right? you know, you kind of segued into the next couple of aspects to where I wanted this to lead down, which is great. I mean, this conversation with you, you're, you're segueing better than I can segue at this point. <laughs> well, well, right, before so we segue, though, I, I, I want to finish the the one point on this because sure, I, I think sure. this is I think this is extremely important. Sure, when when Scotland had their vote to leave the UK in the run up, no one ever suggested that the UK was going to bomb Scotland or use the military to hold them. It's, it's the same thing with the European union and the UK time and time and time again, this, this sort of, you know, well, they will not, they won't let you leave has been used on the opposition side. Those people opposed to the idea of self-determination and self-government. And it just frankly has never materialized. At the end of World War II, there were 54 recognized countries around the world. And at the end of the 20th century, there were 192. And in very few instances, mostly low-profile instances, did, did something like that occur where those people were held by force, right? So if Quebec can go to the polls twice and have an independence referendum without threat of military force, and Scotland can, and the UK can, and country after country after country can do so, then what's wrong with Texas or any other state of the union for that matter, having having that vote and being able to, to do so without the threat of military force? And at the end of the day, final point is this. Poll after poll after poll that's been taken with active duty military has shown that at right at half or maybe a little bit less of the military, believe that a state absolutely has a right to leave the union. So if a president or joint chiefs or whoever decides to, to you know, want to punish a state for having a vote like this, issues that order, you're immediately looking at half of the military having to make a determination as to whether or not they're going to obey or disobey an unconstitutional order. No, and, and I absolutely, absolutely will go with that um the other thing too doesn't texas have its own little militia or military anyway yeah texas has the texas military department and uh the texas military department is basically a three-branch military it's combined comprised of uh you know the texas army national guard the air the air um air national guard and uh the texas state guard i'm sorry um and you know it it serves as what is effectively a backbone I think for us to develop our own national uh, defense off of, you know, our own full-fledged military. 
The difference Most people the, don't realize that, do they, that Texas has that? Yeah, I mean, I, I one of the things I love doing is sending over the the link to the Texas military department and people people saying, "What what is this? You know, <laughs> what is this like?" It, yes, we have our own military, and and look, it's not fully militarized, right? I mean, we have our own, you know, we have our own planes and you know jet fighters, and I mean, we build F sixteens here in Texas, so you know, it's no no big deal there. Um, but you know, for us, when people talk about this this issue of national defense moving forward. I think it's important for everyone to understand that we already have what is effectively the skeletal framework for a full-blown national defense and uh, definitely something to build off of. Yeah, again, that was one of the things that I was quite surprised when I was doing my research. And I think probably more people who are interested in the topic, if you're watching and listening, you need to do a little bit more research on the topic because it is quite fascinating to understand what Texas does and does not have. And it has a lot more does than does nots. I mean, it was quite fascinating. But now you segued into something too, which was one of the reasons why I thought that the United States wouldn't let Texas leave, <clears throat> even if by occupation, is because once Texas leaves, that really opens the door for a lot of these other states to follow suit. I mean, well, other states, look, absolutely. When, no, when I'm wrote, not saying other states <clears throat> haven't. I'm saying is if you're successful, if sure. your movement's successful here in Texas, that is literally the stepping stone, foundation, cornerstone of of the foundation of other states coming to Texas saying, okay, you did it. How did you do it? We want to join you in this, this situation. And the United States wouldn't be able to afford that, right? I mean – well, look, I, I think, and I, and, look, and I said this when I released my book two years ago, uh, Texas, Why and How Texas Will Leave the Union. We got we to gotta plug the book, too. So, Well, that, I just did. Yeah, but we're going to make sure it's in the description. We'll make sure oh, okay. you, we're yeah. going to make sure it's there for you, my friend. We're, I mean, no, no worries. I, and I, look, I'm not trying to plug the book. I'm just trying to re refer back because one of the, the interesting things um, – that that happened with, for me was a lot of the attention for the book came from outside of Texas. Um, but but that's actually, I mean, it wasn't really surprising because that was really my intent. Although the book was written, obviously, from a Texas perspective about what's happening here in Texas. Uh, as I went around promoting the book, I, I was telling these people in other states, look, although this is about us, it's about more than just us here in Texas. Uh, ultimately, I believe that every state should be having this very same conversation, right? Because it's a very pragmatic conversation, right? We're not talking about anything that's out there just kind of odd. We, we need to be asking some hard questions about the relationship that we have within the federal government, you know, within this federal system. Uh, is it best serving our people? Now, but what us, sparked it? I mean, you're talking now every state should have this. And you started your sure. organization, let's say we're not going to say officially 2005, obviously prior to that, because you got to build up to, you know, found, found the idea and everything else. But sure. what was the underlining issue that made you say, okay, enough? Me personally? I guess uh, in general, yeah. You personally and then in general, what makes you think that the movement's, okay, listen, X, we're done. We, we need to stop looking at this. We're done. What was that one thing that set you off that said, hey, listen, I'm done with this? Well, look, for me, you got to understand, I, I was involved in this fight long before 2005, right? August 24th, 1996, to be exact. 
Um, and that came after uh, a, a lot of frustration related to the idea of, of this constitutional republic and the union and looking at, at essentially how uh, irredeemable and uh, unreformable it is, right? Um, but let's, let's admit that the federal government is beyond reform. If you look at, at the past you know, 50 years, look at every attempt at fundamental reform to put the federal government back in its box and, and, and put the federal system back into its constitutional confines. It, it doesn't happen. Right. Instead, what we've seen is, you know, uh, a federal debt that is now getting, you know, bouncing close to 30 trillion dollars. You know, we've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of federal laws, rules and regulations. So many now that if you were to print them up and stack them, it would be taller than the San Jacinto Monument, which, by the way, is taller than the Washington Monument. Just going to throw that out there. Um, You know, you've seen the, the number of unelected bureaucrats swell from a half a million to two and a half million, uh, you know, and you've seen our currency devalue to the point that so it, from the time that I got involved in this, it's lost a third of its value, the dollar has, uh, if not more. So, you know, for me in 1996, those things were, were still happening, right? I could still look back and see that these attempts at reform were not happening. And so when the, the idea or the concept of Texas independence presented itself, it's like, wait a minute. If, if it's the federal government that is the greatest threat to our, our constitutional rights, to, you know, the, to our freedom of speech and freedom of religion and, you know, all of those rights that we know, if they are the greatest threat to liberty and they are the greatest oppressor uh, in the sense that they take our money, we get less than, you know, the, those sorts of things. If, they're, if they are the, the problem, then Texas independence solves that problem. And it removes a layer of government that we don't need and allows us to focus on what's important to us here in Texas and and adjust uh, to the priorities, uh, adjust our priorities according to our challenges that we have here. So So, so let me ask you a straight out question. Man, I was in. So let me me ask you a a straight out question then. Sure. Do you honestly believe the idea of America has changed? I mean, when I say that, the principles that was founded on, do you really think that they're not being adhered to? Do you really not? The America of what should have been is not the America we got today. Well, I I think that goes without saying. I think if you were to, I think if you were to poll people, uh, I think I I, I would be in the solid majority on that one. Right. But, but your, your question was, did the principles change? And and the, the thing is the principles didn't change. What, what happened was, the, the structural challenges within the Constitution, uh, the, you know, there, and, and there, there, there are, were some structural problems that allowed this sort of thing to happen. And, and it was a, a conscious decision, start going all the way back to uh, Alexander Hamilton and those people who wanted to transform the union from a union of states into a national government. Um, since then, that progression has happened. Well, the, the problem with that is, is that the Constitution structurally is not adequate for a national government, right? It, they're not compatible. So you, you wind up with things like something you actually mentioned a moment ago. You, you talked about how you, you were surprised at how Texas, how many things Texas had, you know, is what like the Texas military department. Right. Well, if you look at all 50 states, all 50 states structurally 
are are republics with their own constitution, their own three-branch government. They are not administrative or political subdivisions of the federal government, okay? So what what happens is that you you have all of these uh, pieces and parts structurally that say, okay, look, the Constitution is effectively a, a limited political union, a free trade agreement, a free travel agreement, a mutual defense pact, and a little bit of a smattering of a of a you know multinational postal convention thrown in. I mean that's that's effectively what it is. When you look at the fourteen or seventeen enumerated powers that are in the United States Constitution, then that's that's what you've got. And so structurally, the union is that way. But we're being told and being pushed that somehow that this is a monolithic nation state and that all 50 states are just political subdivisions. We're, you know, people that were told that the states are to the federal government like the cities are to the states. And yeah, that's think, just simply not true. I think I think the problem, though, comes into, you know, um, I'm going to bring it back to money. Uh, sure. I think a lot of states have become welfare states of the American government. And, you know, uh, there's very few states like Texas that pour in a lot more than what they get back. About a dozen on average a year uh, get get more. But but also, I want you to look at this because it's not simply about the kind of the plus and the minus, okay? Because one thing that we did not talk about is what happens with that money when it comes back here. Sure, let's get into it real quick. Yeah, so, you know, obviously some of that money that does come back goes into federal payroll. And so the question then becomes, Do is that the the best use of that money? Because we know the federal government's two and a half million unelected bureaucrats is unwieldy, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, the question is, is that the most efficient use of that money? And typically it's not. Okay. But more than that, when that money goes back into these programs that are administered by the state government, there's typically a matching fund situation, right? Where Texas has to spin up an agency, they have to staff it. And then partial funding comes from the federal government and the state government has to make up the difference. See, that's why in the last legislative session, over 40% of the bills filed referenced a federal law, a federal agency, a federal program, some federal regulation, a federal court case, right? 40%. So that means that not only, not only are we overpaying, but half of our laws are being written in Washington, D.C. effectively so that we can try to grab at some of that revenue and get it back while in the process still having to spend more money to be able to claw that money back. So, you know, we're we're actually having to pay for a lot of those dollars twice. So, you know, what you do is you effectively just take it, say, okay, look, what is our overall tax burden, right? If, If Texas were to just say, okay, look, all the money that we're being taxed right now goes into a pot, and every bit of money, and that's at the state level or the federal level. Let's just say that all of it did. We didn't increase anyone's tax burden. What does that look like? And and what you find is, is that it's more than enough to not only fund a self-governing independent nation state, but to do so according to our priorities. That's why we say, you know, when, when people say, well, you know, if you guys leave, they'll just cut off Social Security. It's like, well, they won't. Because Social Security Administration pays federal pension payments for people who live outside of the United States. But you know what? If they did, we wouldn't even bat an eye. It no, wouldn't you, be a you're problem. telling me you have the money for it, so it doesn't matter. 
Exactly. You know, and, and that's the that's the thing about it. It's not so much just that plus and minus of the overpayment. It's all of the strings that are attached to every dollar that comes back and every regulation. You know, we didn't even talk about the fact that, you know, there, there was a study that was done out of George Mason University about federal regulatory accumulation, you know, where the federal government c- continues to heap uh, regulation on top of regulation on top of regulation. So that, you know, they had a, a pretty famous study that I talk about in, in my book but what was interesting is there was another study <clears throat> on that very similar issue where they took some of the numbers, the same numbers that George Mason University did, and this, this is what they found. They said that because of federal regulatory accumulation, there's about a 2% compression of GDP annually, okay? And, and you take that since, say, 1949 when the, the federal super state started to really ramp up. Yep. And here, here's what you get. When the study was dropped the average median household income was $53,000 a year. And their study found that in the absence of those federal regulations, the average median household income would have been $330,000. So not only are they robbing and stealing our tax money, but because they can't even govern correctly, what they've done is they've made on average every household $277,000 poorer. Okay, well... That's a staggering number. So let me ask you a question. Now, for people who are watching and listening, and obviously I'll put it in the description, what's the best way for them to get this information from your organization? Yeah, uh, they can go right to our website uh, to tnm.me, tnm.me slash Texit. And we put all of this information there. Pretty much every question that you ask me today is answered there. Oh, don't get me wrong. I said an hour. I'm going to try to stick to the hour, but I have a lot more, and I'm hoping to get you on record one more time, two more times, because yeah. I don't let's, see let's this do going it. away anytime soon. I mean, you're not going away. You've been there since 2005. Let's let's be honest. So, right. How close has has your organization come? Let's be honest and have that conversation. How close have you come to actually getting uh, this to happen? This to fruition? Well, it has been the. Um it has been a work. I mean, it's been a, a lot of work. Uh, 2005, this issue was polling. Support for this issue was polling in single digits. And, you know, we had just we just started. We were just founded. Uh, and you just went green. Did I? <laughs> you got a filter on? No. Oh. There you are. That's bizarre. Okay. But, but I went green, so it was like I was feeling under the weather, right? <laughs> I, was, I was thinking and saying you were going to think about money or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. Or you went uh, to Grinch. It's Christmas time. You went Grinch on us. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's weird. Okay. Um, so uh, back back where we were, uh, we were talking about before polling. I went green. The polling. polling. Single digits. Single digits. Thank you. Sorry, the green threw me. Uh, you know, we were polling single digits, but we got out there and worked it, you know, as a political and social movement. And so uh, we started engaging the Texas legislature in 2009. That's when we thought that we had connected with enough Texans to to really kind of make a push to have this conversation about the legislation that needs to be passed. And, uh, you know, we were okay. We were at, uh, I think polling was, the Research 2000 poll had Republicans right at 48%, uh, independents about 40%, and Democrats at 15%. Uh, 
uh, but it was on a soft question, right? About if Texas, you know, would Texas be better off as an independent nation? But it's it's not a, it's not a far stretch to go from there to would it be better off to should it be? And so we saw those numbers climb in 2014 when it was polled right around the time of the Scottish independence referendum. Boy, they they were not happy with the results that they got here because it showed 54% Republican, half of independent, and 35% of Democrats uh, were in favor, not just, not just believing that Texas would be better off, but that Texas should become an independent nation. So, uh, you know, that's, that's when we knew that, that we were pretty doggone close. Legislatively, um, you know, of course, all of this, and, and I don't know that we've talked about this yet, but all, all of this has to culminate in in legislation, right? The the legislature right. is the bottleneck for this, and so you know, for us, it's been uh, you know our legislative work beyond some of the other aspects of our mission that I mentioned earlier, like the Texas Gold Depository Act, have been really focused on getting us that Brexit style vote right here in Texas. And so three times uh, we came we came close. Um, State Representative Leo Berman, uh, now deceased, uh, phenomenal guy, uh, and I do believe he was a former Marine. Uh, but he he had agreed to file uh, file the legislation, and when he uh, made the agreement to file the legislation, the Speaker of the House at the time, Joe Strauss. Uh, threatened to tank all the rest of his bills. And he had some some bills that were pretty important uh, to his constituents. And he just, you know, he, I'm not going to say he was intimidated, but he did the cost-benefit analysis and said, look, I just can't file it, okay? So then you move on to um, the, the second closest that we came, and that was after a meeting with then-Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst and, and four state senators, uh, Dewhurst's office began to actively work on trying to get this legislation filed for us. He said, look, I, I want to try to make this happen, but I want to make sure that we've got the AG uh, on board with us so that we can clear any legal hurdles if there's any problems. And, and the attorney general at the time was Greg Abbott, now governor, and Abbott took a hard pass on it because he was afraid of how it would affect his chances of getting elected as governor. He was <laughs> ramping up for his governor's run. And so Dewhurst said, you know, I can't, I can't move on this without the AG. And Abbott is, you know, he's doing his thing. So second time. Third time, uh, State Representative James White uh, from HD19 over here, uh, he filed or started the filing process for the legislation. Uh, the ledge council, because of how it was constructed, stripped out the referendum and converted it to nothing more than a resolution, and it died in committee. Okay, So, you know, wh where we are right now is we have the best crafted piece of, of legislation moving through the process, sitting with the Texas Legislative Council, submitted by State Representative Kyle Biederman, and uh, this piece of legislation looks, by all measures, it looks like it's going to fly through Ledge Council and get filed uh, day one of the legislative session. So we're, we're excited. This is, this is a, a major thing. I mean, people have to understand no piece of legislation has been filed like this in probably 150 years. So this is history in the making. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So what is this? No, on a more humorous note, does this end with a president, Ted Cruz, finally? 
<laughs> you know, I had to put it out there. I mean, come on. I mean, come on. I had to put it out there, right? Uh, so does Ted Cruz finally get his wish? He's president. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think he's been flirting on Twitter with actually kind of rebooting the whole Zodiac Killer thing. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't I don't know what his intentions are right now. Uh, but, look, you know, what? It, ultimately, the people of Texas will choose who governs them. That, that's the way that it's always been, and that's the way that it's always going to be. And so, you know, post-Texit, the people of Texas will make, make their decision on who will be their chief executive and who's going to represent them in a newly formed, you know, hopefully they call it a Republican Texas Congress, but, uh, you know, that's, that's ultimately up to the people of Texas. Do you think you design. take back the old Republican Texas name? I think so. Um, I, I suspect that that's the direction that people will want to go. Um, it, it makes the most sense. No, I'm just saying. I understand yeah. that when for that decade it was its own country. That's what it was called, Republic of Texas. That's what I'm asking. You think we're going to hold to tradition and, and and keep that name and go back to say, okay, this is what it is? I mean, yeah, it's I mean, really I, always I, been anyway. Texas has always been treated differently, attitude wise, regardless. I mean, right. But here's the kicker, though. This is the one thing most people don't realize either, is doing this research, um, mm -hmm. if Texas really wanted to screw over the United States government anyway, you guys have a very funny law in your constitution that allows you to break up into five different states. Yeah, that's, that's actually not on the constitution. That, that's, it's, it's a funny, quirky bit uh, of Texas history and really shows you how unique the relationship is between Texas and the rest of the United States. But but here's what it boils down to. You know, the people say that Texas was annexed by treaty, and, and that's not entirely true. A treaty was presented, but it was voted down by the United States Senate. And so what happened was that Texas was, you know, te Texas was admitted. I have to choose my words very carefully, okay? Texas was admitted by a joint resolution of annexation, so a joint resolution of Congress, okay? Now, if you look at the joint resolution of Congress, there were actually, remember, we're dealing with two Congresses here. We're dealing with the Republic of Texas Congress, and we're dealing with the United States Congress. So Republic of Texas Congress issues out this joint resolution that has these three provisions, and the third provision is is that Texas would be able to divide into four additional states, and those four states would be guaranteed admission into the union. Okay, now, now think about that phrase, okay? It's very specific. Right. Four additional states, and those four states would be guaranteed admission into the union. Okay, so that was part of the joint resolution. So if you think about it, just the acceptance of that part of the agreement presupposes that there would have been a situation where Texas could have divided into additional states and those states would not have been admitted to the union. So honestly, you could get away with cutting out a hundred acres saying this is Texas and we're taking the rest of Texas and it's its own state. And, and we're not, well, yeah, and we're not, you know, United States, not you get one acre of land. Good job. This yeah. is Texas. Well, Look, you're more generous than me. I, I suggested something about one inch square. Um, okay. Here's the state of Texas. What, what we'll do is we'll just cut a little a one inch square notch out of, uh, you know, Dalhart up there somewhere. And uh, it's okay. That's the state of Texas. And we've split, we've divided into an additional state. Uh, and, you know, we understand that we are guaranteed admission, but we're not applying. So, you know, thank I you. didn't know it like that. 
I didn't read yeah. it like that, but I'm so, I'm glad you told me because I didn't read it like that. That was because I thought it would just be like Texas saying, you know what, United States, I'm just going to screw you over anyway. Here, let me send five different states of Republicans, you know, to the to the Capitol, and yeah, good luck. <laughs> I mean, we're going to get what like, we want anyway. Yeah, um, and and look, I mean, that's well, still actually, Austin would be Democrat. Let's face it, that's no. <laughs> well, I mean, they could get gerrymandered too, but you know, <laughs> here's here's the thing. You know, the thing to bear in mind is, is that, you know, and people propose this, you know, it's political. So that no one wants to split Texas up. They don't want to. Um, but well, why and would they propose you? It's, it's, it a like, huge, it's a huge state with a bunch of resources. I mean. Well, yeah. And I mean, think about all the waffle irons we'd have to throw out, right? Oh, <laughs> I mean, I got to be honest, man. I, I, I love that attitude. I've been here. <laughs> and I got to swear. I mean, that's the one thing. I don't know if it's the Marine in me or whatnot have you, but that attitude of Texas and Texas pride, yeah. it just gets me and my wife too. It's like, oh my God. I mean, you just everywhere. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. And I love it. It's like, you just don't see the public, the the actual citizens of the, of other states adopting that attitude and being prideful about where they are, in, yeah, and in, in other states like you do here, it's just incredible. It's uh, you know, and I mean, not not to beat a dead horse, but it's you know, frankly, just because we're awesome. I mean, I I don't know any other way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to do this. Let's end with this, sure. right? Let's end with here. I'm sure I, I'm definitely going to try to get you back on. You have, I'm sure there's going to be more questions because I'm going to do more research. Um, sure. And you do have that referendum trying to come up, right? I mean, that's coming up when? Yeah. Uh, the legislative session starts next month. Uh, yep. or I think January the 12th is the date. Um, and, you know, we're we're fighting hard. I mean, we, we've got Texans coming, you know, that, that have been on the fence about this or that have been silent. Uh, they are they are organizing and we're glad to have them on board. You know, I, obviously, for for months now, um, our numbers have been have been growing, but more than just the numbers growing, we're organizing people. They are in the ears of their legislators right now saying that they want a vote on Texas independence. And look, let's let, let me just throw this out there, because I think for this interview right now at this time, this is the, the important thing people need to understand where someone stands on the Texas issue, whether they're for it or against it is not what's up for debate right now. What's up for debate right now is whether the people of Texas at a minimum should have the right to vote on this issue. You know, th this is what is in question, right? We, if we have the vote, then ahead of that vote, we can have the debate over the pros and cons of Texas. I'm pretty sure you understand where where I stand and where the organization stands on this, but we need to have a lot of voices. There needs to be a very healthy and vigorous debate about, about all aspects of Texas. But, but that is not what you're the proposing, debate. But what you're proposing is not the debate. What you're proposing is do you have the right to debate? That's what the question you're asking. Yeah, the, the legislation that is being presented to the legislature is not a declaration of independence. We're not saying in this legislation that if this legislation passes, we're out of here. What we're saying is if this legislation passes, then the question will be placed in the hands of the people best suited for making that decision and the only ones allowed to make that decision constitutionally, and that is the people of Texas. So that's what's in debate here as to whether or not fundamentally we have a right 
to make to, to answer this question in a, in a in a poll, you know, and not one taken with a survey size of you know a thousand people by some third party pollster, but literally the people of Texas, after a vigorous, thorough debate on the issue, going to the polls and casting a vote on whether or not the state of Texas should reassert its status as an independent nation. Let the people answer the question. Let the people speak. If if there's if, if Texas is such a horrible thing, then let's have a vote on it and let's have that debate ahead of time. And then if it's if Texas is such a horrible idea, it will lose in a landslide. It, it will get buried. It will be thrown in the rubbish heap of history, and I will go down as the biggest buffoon that that politics has ever seen. But at a minimum, the people of Texas should be able to vote on the issue and express their political will. Well, again, I mean, it's not it's, – I don't think it would be a buffoon. I think if anyone honestly takes a look at it, it's a, it's a hell of an interesting question. I, you know, and it's like anybody I've ever had on my channel, like I have flat earthers who are on my channel and they believe in flat earth. And sure. I say, hey, listen, it's a, it's a very interesting concept. you know. And if you provide me with interesting facts that support you, then we're going to talk about it because – you know, um, I think the problem here is when you're talking about something of this magnitude versus that magnitude, yes, it's great to want to believe in that theory, but, you know, either side's got to prove something. Here, it's definitely more fact-based, and what most people don't understand is what Texas actually has, what Texas can actually do. You know, right. I, it's funny because you hear in politics a lot of time, Russia, 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 <laughs> but Russia on the GDP level is actually beneath Texas, I mean, that's a, that's staggering. That that's absolutely staggering to think that Texas, as its own separate nation, beats out Russia. Tech, and look, you have to understand that figure, that GDP figure, is still within the constraints of the federal system, right? So let, let's go. Let's go back to the economic, the economic argument that we had a while ago. Not you know the economic discussion we had a while ago. Yeah, I don't argue on this channel. I want to get yeah, information yeah. out. <laughs> no, no, no. But but we go back to, to the economic aspects of this, right? And, and you realize, all right, if that money, take that just that overpayment, right? We won't even get into all the other factors, but take the overpayment. The 103 to $160 billion a year overpayment. You take that and you pump that into the Texas economy, just that portion of it. What does that do overall for our GDP? Now we're suddenly looking at moving from, say, the ninth largest economy in the world to perhaps the eighth or the seventh, because, you know, we don't know specifically where that money will go, but we know that there's at a minimum a one-to-one -one parity with discretionary income, right? So that, that money stays back here. That money stays in our pockets, wherever it goes, but it goes right here into the Texas economy. Now factor in all the other aspects, right? So all of a sudden now, if if property taxes can go away because there's more money circulating through the economy, so our consumption tax no longer requires us to have a property tax, the, the raw revenue coming off of that, now that's somewhere in the neighborhood of about another 50 to $60 billion a year in property taxes that are having to be collected that are now staying in the pockets of Texans Right. That are being spent in the economy. So now what are we looking at? We're, you know, seventh or sixth largest economy in the world. You know, and that's just some some aspects of it, right? Is is we start really drilling down on these numbers and and realizing as an independent nation, right? I'm not talking about hypotheticals, right? As we start 
living out a post-Texan economy, I think we're all going to be blown away by what sort of economic engine it is. And I think the world will probably be surprised at how much of an economic, uh, how much Texas was driving any success that the U.S. economy has had at least over the last 20 years. No, I'm not going to disagree with that. Like I said, that was my one fear is if you did get it to the point where it's an actual consideration and it's going to be an actual possibility. I don't think the United States would ever let Texas go because of the fact it's a cash cow, period, the end. But, you know, one last question, no major details. Relationship with Mexico, better than it is today? I, I think it definitely Post-exit. Post no. Yeah, look, Mexico Mexico is is a, a major trading partner for Texas. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, I think they're the number one recipient of our exported goods, if I remember right. But Texas has a, a, a super um, a super economic relationship with uh, with Mexico, and we've got a, a cultural tie there too, right? So if you're looking at a post Texas relationship with Mexico, it's obviously going to be better. Uh, simply because we'll have the ability to essentially set the parameters of that relationship. Whereas right now, the relationship that Texas has with Mexico is directly tied to the political football that is Mexico on the federal side of things, right? Where we have politicians in states that really don't have anything to do with Mexico. They don't border Mexico. They, they don't, they're not impacted by it whatsoever. Not just that, but, the but, but Texas has what 40 has a, the biggest Latino or, or population of like 40%, right? I mean, some type of, yeah, well, or, it's a little, little North of, of 30 some odd percent, um, you know, depending, depending on what the definition is. Right. right, uh, right. Okay. But, but look, the, the fact of the matter is, is that Mexico is, is a phenomenal trade partner for Texas. Uh, Mexico is has been a a good neighbor for Texas to a certain extent. I mean, there's obviously uh, in, in the modern day we've got some issues that that we've got to hash out with those guys. Uh, you know, the Rio Grande Water Treaty and and some of those things. But um, you know, the, the immigration issue, um, the the violence that spills over from the border. I mean, we've got some issues that we need to address. But let let's be honest, Texas hasn't been able to address those issues. Because the federal government says that's our power, our authority yeah. to negotiate that, not Texas. And right. so, and look, I mean, let's look at how the federal government has treated veterans and how they deliver your mail, and understand that that's how they're addressing border and the border issues and the immigration issues. They're doing it just as efficiently as those two systems. And. If anyone has any doubt about what I mean, I mean poorly. <laughs> no, I get it. All right, so we're a little over, so let's end it here. I want to thank you so much for having you on. Just stick around for a couple minutes, but uh, we're definitely going to get you on again after the referendum. I want to see what happens. We need to talk about this more because me being living in Texas, um, you know, it obviously affects me, and I think a lot of people today are kind of interested, especially after what happened uh, recently with the Supreme Court and everything else going on. I'm sure you've been thrown front and center again, all over again, right? So Sometimes let's talk it feels like drinking out of a fire hose. <laughs> that's it. So let's talk about that the next time. Stick around yeah. for me, will you? Will do.